The simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. Today I will be interviewing two food safety experts. We will be discussing allergen control and how this could affect your food safety programs. Hi, my name is Lynn Carson, your host and CEO of Bakerpedia. What is Bakerpedia? It's the world's largest online depository of technical baking information. Bakerpedia can't happen without sponsors. So before we start, I would like to do a shout out to our sponsor. Did you know that the best food safety programs are only as good as the workforce behind them? Allergen contamination prevention is only attainable with well-implemented programs and robust employee training. Did you know that it actually costs more to hire new employees to manage food safety programs than it is to invest training dollars in developing your existing workforce? AIB International, today's sponsor, equips bakeries to mitigate allergen cost contact with expert-led on-site training and consulting. AIB is helping you reach your food safety goals with an exclusive offer for our Baked in Science listeners. Mention Bakerpedia Podcast when you call to schedule your next implant training and you'll receive 20% off the price. This offer expires December 30th, 2018. So don't wait. Call now. Well, here we go. Today, we have Bonnie Beagle, the director of QA for Americas from AIB. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, how are you today, Lynn? I'm good. Um, we will be discussing a little bit more about food safety and allergens and, um, in today's topic for discussion. Um, let us start off with um, what are the top allergens in America that are that you can name that are required for an allergen clean. Okay, so that would be the big eight that's uh, defined. So we have wheat, eggs, soy, milk, fish, uh, crustaceans, shellfish, tree nuts, and egg. Um, that would be listed as allergens in the United States. Great, and that those are all FDA regulated, right? Right, those okay. are in the the regulations. Yes. Okay, so in your experience, which is the most difficult to deal with? Um, well, it kind of depends on uh, a little bit on what what you're producing. So if you're producing something that has um, an oily substrate, let, let's say like peanut, uh, peanut allergen or perhaps tree nuts, right. um, the oilier material tends to stick and you'll have to use a really good detergent in order to loosen that soil and get it off. So that can pose some difficulty. Other things you need to think about too is if it's in a powdered format, and um, you can get aerosolization of the dust uh, with the allergen in it. So in that case, so, uh, you need to think about cleaning outside of the product zone too. Um, right. So including uh, the air, the air systems, right? Um, it could be possible because uh, if it gets sucked up in an air system, possibly it could be redistributed that way. Um, if uh, air currents are strong enough for it to be uh, to get into the air systems, but. 
definitely need to think about aerosolization when you're dealing with powdered um, materials that contain allergen-containing material. Yeah, that's true. Um, in large-scale in large scale bakeries, usually uh, we are aware of what's an allergen and what's not an allergen. And sometimes we are not aware that's an allergen in a product. So how do you evaluate raw materials for the presence of allergens during the purchasing process? So there's a couple different ways of doing that. Um, so um, first of all, you need to verify the allergen content of the material that's being received from the supplier. Um, and uh, to do that, uh, you might want to look to your supplier approval uh, programs. Mm -hmm. um, so a couple things you might want to ask your supplier is, um, what other allergens are being processed processed at the facility, uh -huh. uh, and especially which other allergens that are not in the formulations that you're purchasing that are run on the lines that will be producing that bakery's product because you're going to want to make sure there's a good allergen clean between what you're purchasing and then other materials that would contain different allergens so you avoid the cross-contact issue. Mm -hmm. uh, other things you want to look at is um, you want to ask, speak to them about their cleaning procedures. They have to be very robust. Right. Um, you might want to ask them about line scheduling. That's and true. Also, how do they verify their allergen changeover cleaning? That's true. Um, so I have a question right there. Those are pretty mm -hmm. transparent questions that a, bake, mm -hmm. a baker may be asking. In your experience, will the supplier provide those kind of information to the baker if they ask it? Um, typically, yes. Okay. Um, I don't know why there would be any reason for them to hide that. So I don't know why there wouldn't be transparency there. Okay. So basically, it's on the baker's side to know what kinds of questions to ask. Yes. Okay. Uh, so they should have that all included as part of their supplier verification program. Okay. Uh, so... But um, validation of their allergen cleaning program is going to be an important question to ask mm -hmm. them from a, a cleaning standpoint. Um, and best methods, uh, as far as that goes, would be to use an allergen test kit to validate the cleanliness of the surface mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that they remove the allergen-containing residue. Um, they don't have test kits for every allergen. Um, so another strategy that's being used is to use a protein test to validate allergen cleaning because all allergens are protein. So right. um, that would be a way of uh, validating um, where allergen-specific test kit would not be available. Okay. Um, some sites do ATP testing, um, but that's not a measure of protein. It's a measure of more organic material that's left on the line. So it may or may not correlate to allergen uh, residue removal. Um, then um, one other strategy um, that's being employed uh, for validation of cleaning is if there's multiple allergens within a formula, uh, they might use a test kit to validate removal of the allergen residue that's considered to be the most difficult to remove. Um, so that may uh, be something with the, the most uh, quote-unquote allergen load on mm -hmm. the line. Um, so those methods can be used both at the supplier site and might be also best practices that the bakery might, might also want to consider when they're doing their allergen cleaning. So those are all things they, you know, would want to ask all right. their suppliers. Those are great tips. Thanks. Um, what other tips do you have that you can offer bakeries who want to mitigate allergen cross-contact risk at their supplier's plant? Um, well, they need to look at storage methodologies. So, 
Um, storage of allergens at the floor level would be ideal. Um, mm -hmm. So they can do that both at the supplier and also at the bakery sites. Uh, that's often not possible. I don't think there's any bakery or any facility, food manufacturing facility that I've been to that says they have enough storage space or too much storage space. <laughs> so the other thing they need to look at is uh, like over like. So, um, so you're storing one allergen um, if you have a rack system or if you're double stacking pallets on, on top of the same allergen. Uh -huh. And the other thing they need to keep in mind, every allergen is separate and distinct. So... Uh, each tree nut that's listed, um, each tree nut would be considered a separate and distinct allergen. So you can't just say, oh, these are tree nuts and we store them all together. Other things you need to think about is like and to like would be rework. So how are they uh, managing their rework uh, mm -hmm. to be sure that they're not getting any cross uh, contact through putting the wrong uh, rework into the material and getting uh, cross contact that way? Mm -hmm. um, you can look at things, too, like, uh, oh, utensil. Uh, do they have a color code system for utensils uh, to prevent allergen contact? Um, are there color-coded containers, bins? Um, so those are all things they might want to consider uh, to have a really robust allergen control program. And that, now that obviously, employee training is going to be key to that um, because if the, the employees need to understand the, um, the importance of allergen control and allergen cross-contact, uh, so they have a great understanding of why they need to be uh, executing on these programs. That is true. Now, with FSMA coming on too strongly into the baking industry, um, how has FSMA focused on allergen cross-contact impacted bakeries? Okay. So the update to the GMPs mentions allergen cross-contact at least 24 times. And that's in the 21 CFR Part 117. Wow. That wasn't included as part of the G previous GMP regulation, which was 21 CFR uh, 0.110. And if you look at recalls, undeclared allergens are still the number one reason for product recalls in the United wow. States. Mm -hmm. And that, so even with all that you've been hearing about, uh, you know, the recent salmonella recalls, uh, allergens have, n have not been displaced as uh, undeclared allergens have not been displaced as the number one uh, product recall reason. Wow. Um, this added emphasis on elimination of allergen cause contact has also provided additional focus and emphasis uh, to ensure that cleaning practices and procedures are robust enough to remove all the allergen residues. And you can see that really well represented in some of the 483s that are being uh, generated by FDA investigators. Right, right. Yeah, that is, uh, that is, that is really unknown that recall is really the number one, uh, sorry, food uh, allergens are the number one <laughs> reason for recalls. That's quite surprising. Um, so in addition, what are the best storage practices for raw materials to prevent cross-contact? Um, so some of the things we already talked about, storing them on the ground level if possible. That way if a bag gets damaged, it leaks onto the floor instead of onto another product. Uh, if you have to double stack things and uh, like over light, like, so flour over flour, soy over soy, et cetera, uh, making sure that you understand that each uh, allergen type, especially if you're talking about things like tree nuts, is a separate and distinct allergen uh, and needs to be segregated in storage. And then we also talked a little bit about color coding. Uh, so uh -huh. things need to be removed from... Um, their bag uh, that they're in a color-coded container. Um, they have 
um, color coding of utensils. Those are all best practices uh, when you think about how to store and prevent uh, allergen cross-contact. Right. So those are pretty simple methods, but also, um, you know, requires a lot of thought and logistics to it. Um, one of the issues that bakers have is the sanitation time allowed for an allergen clean. Is there a particular way to reduce sanitation time for an allergen clean? Um, probably the best practice that I've seen is line scheduling. And what we mean by line scheduling on that is, let's say, for example, you're at a facility and let's say they make something that only has um, wheat as the only allergen. Let's say you do that one at the beginning of the week. And let's say you have to change to another product then on that same line. So maybe you add uh, maybe wheat and then soy if, if that's the second uh, ingredient in the middle of the week. And let's say at the end of the week you have to produce a product that has wheat, soy, and egg. You do that at the very end of the week. And then when it comes down for your downtime, then you can do your um, thorough cleaning and your um, allergen uh, cleaning at that point. And it's not quite so arduous because what you've done is you've added an allergen on. So if you can do line scheduling, um, that's probably the most easy and effective way of doing that if it's possible. That's now, true. obviously, customers have demands and they may require something on short notice. Yeah. Uh, but probably that's the, the most easiest uh, way if you have the luxury of time. Yeah, uh, and the latitude to schedule um, is to basically add one on so that when you come to your downtime at the end of the week, then you have uh, enough time allotted to do that good thorough allergen cleaning. So uh, allergen cleaning also involves the cooling lines and packaging area too, right? Yes. It, does it involve anything uh, after packaging? Um, typically not because it's going to be in a secondary container and contained at that point. Uh, obviously, if there was any damage or anything like that, you may have to consider what your allergen cleaning procedures would be after that. Uh, but typically at that point, it's either going to be in a bag or maybe some secondary packaging, depending upon what kind of product that you have. So the risk probably of cross-contact in that uh, particular scenario is probably going to be minimized. Okay. But you should at least have basic procedures as far as, um, you know, if there's damage in a spill, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to sweep it up? That's true. How are you going to handle that? So, again, you need to look at your risk assessment there and see what the, the risk is for cross-contact. That's very good. Um, you know, uh, the brioche bread seems to be a trend right now, um, and that includes eggs and butter. Um, what can you tell bakers, what can they do in terms of methods and testing uh, that you can recommend to check for a complete allergen clean? Okay. Well, again, that's going to depend on whether or not um, there are test kits available because uh, there's not test kits available for everything. Yeah. I know there is a, a egg test kit and there is one for total milk. Okay. Um, that you can look at. And again, you're going to have to take a look at uh, what's going to be the hardest one to remove. Or if you have the luxury, you could certainly do your cleaning validation based on testing for both of those. Yeah. Um, if you want to validate for both egg and total milk. Yeah, for uh, the egg. Would be for the, the, 
Yeah, for the egg brioche product, I, I feel like the toughest thing to remove is usually the area where they have the egg wash for the brioche, you know. So um, what suggestions do you have for the egg wash area, for example? Uh, egg wash areas, if there's a liquid, they can usually use um, like more wet cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could do wet cleaning there again, um, good detergent. Uh, in order to uh, remove the the egg re- residue, uh, good sanitizing of um, the tank, and uh, don't forget that uh, if they're using nozzles or anything to apply the egg wash on that, that they take those apart and do a good clean in between uh, the little uh, ridges where the the nozzles might screw on. So. Um, you want to make sure you're, you're taking a look at all of those areas to make they do make sure they do a good thorough cleaning. That's true, and I'm thinking about the pans as well. Do bakeries usually have a different set of pans, or do they clean their pans for uh, for different allergens? Uh, and again, it depends. Uh, a lot of people do use dedicated pans, particularly if they have something um, like where they're doing an egg wash or something right. on that. They will actually dedicate pans to that. Um, so um, typically they don't wash um, like bakery pans, pans that are right. used for buns and, and bread. That's um, where you see washing more is in... in uh, and cake type operations in order to remove the the cake residue and the and the pan release that they apply to that. So um, typically in bakeries, washing is not something you would see with with pans. That's true. Okay. And um, just to wrap things up, do you have any last tips for a bakery who wants to, for example, uh, bake just with a wheat product and then something with eggs? Um, Again, if they can look at line scheduling, look at how they're segregating those raw materials and managing those, uh, Mm -hmm. look at how they're managing those in storage. Um, They may want to look at dedicated pans there. Um, If you can do dedicated lines, I don't know if that's a possibility. There are some people that are exploring that uh, to help uh, mitigate any risk of uh, allergen uh, cross-contamination. Um, they also know, need to look at the point of application. So is egg a raw material that's going to go in the mixer or is egg going to be something you spray on after it comes out of the, the oven because that changes where you would have to do the mitigation stra- strategies for allergen cleaning. That's so you true. need to take all of those things in consideration when you're designing a good robust sanitation program to be sure that you eliminate the allergen um, cross-contact potential Great. Uh, in those is- areas. Now, is there a FDA uh, guideline to bringing eggs down to a certain PPM before um, it's declared egg allergen free? Um, no, there's no tolerance or zero tolerance for any okay. allergens in any product. Um, the best, uh, it depends on the methodology uh, that you use and the test kit and the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And that. So, uh, if you're Eli- using an ELISA test kit, um, there'll be an actual sensitivity that's in uh, typically reflected in like parts per million uh, that the kit's able to detect, uh, and that's that's the best science that we have, and that's the level of detection. So it's um, basically positive and negative, and it needs to be negative. Uh, no, it goes down to parts per million. Oh, okay. 
Okay. So if it's a, if it's above minimum above the minimum detectable detectable parts per million, then it would show up. But if there would be something less than that, again, it's it's based on the sensitivity of the test. Okay. So it's not necessarily just a, a pass fail. It just depends on the sensitivity of the test, how far down you can test to in parts per million. And you need to document this every time you clean. Um, depends on that. You can validate your cleaning uh, methods. So you can do the clean and then you can use a test kit to validate. Um, and if you can demonstrate through validation, you may want to revalidate on a particular frequency. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's going to be dependent upon um, what you think your risk is and your, your mitigation policies are. Um, there's some people that do side-by-side -side comparisons of the ELISA test with a protein test so they can get uh, equivalent reads on that. Um, they may even do that with uh, uh, ATP in some cases, um, just so they can have some idea of what a clean surface would be reflected in ATP. Mm -hmm. But um, And then it depends on if you want to do the validation every single time uh, with a, a uh, ELISA test kit, then certainly you could do that too. So um, each facility does their own risk assessment and they determine uh, what the level of validation um, that they need uh, between awesome. allergen changeovers. Awesome. I know that you have a lot of experience in this. How long have you been in, uh, in auditing for this program? Um, actually, I'm a, been a, I started with AIB 30, 30 years ago uh, as a food safety professional in the field. So i um, seen a lot of changes in the industry right. uh, with regards to, to regulations and right. uh, the emergence of allergens. So from a baker's perspective, um, how can they learn more? And since you have such a re rich background, how can they learn from you? Um, um, certainly, if they want to email uh, info at aibonline.org, um, we have an email box there. They could email me directly, um, and um, I can certainly answer whatever questions I can. Right. Uh, there's also another excellent resource in there on, at the univer University of Nebraska. Um, they have the Food uh, Allergy Research and Resource Program. Wow. Okay. And that, so they're kind of the, uh, I guess, center of the world, so to speak, uh, when it comes to the, the allergen research. And they've worked very closely in developing a lot of these uh, ELISA test kits that we've been discussing uh, during yeah. this call. And you do one-on-one -on -one consultation as well, right, from EIB? Um, as far as allergen verification? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Allergen clean, or if a, a baker has a problem cleaning up, we'll certainly do whatever we can to to help them on that, okay. and uh, and we can consult with them to to have have a look at their programs or talk to them about their programs. That's true. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Bonnie. All right. Well, thank you very much thank you for coming on. Have a great day. Bye. Here's a word from our sponsor. Want to prepare your team to excel at your next food safety audit? Schedule an in-plant inspection training with AIB International. AIB's expert team of food safety professionals is prepared to help you get audit ready. Don't forget to mention this podcast when you call 785-537-4750 before December 30th, 2018. You will get 20% off your next in-plant training. Just mention that you heard it here on the Bakerpedia podcast. 
Hey listeners, I have a treat for you today. I have Kathy Davis. She is the CEO of Food Industry Employment Program and a former professor of food science. Kathy, could you tell our listeners what what is your ex- previous experience? So I was a faculty member for 20 years, first at the University of Delaware and then at Delaware University, which is in Pennsylvania. Um, I taught all courses of food science, so I've taught everything from intro food science all the way through to product development. Mm-hmm. Um, I got interested when I was at Delval Del University uh, with sanitation management was one of the courses I taught and that got me interested into food safety uh-huh. and I also got interested into food access awesome. and the fact that a lot of people don't have access to food. Oh, that's really neat. Um, for our listeners who will latch onto the accent, <laughs> could you tell them where you originally came from? Yeah, so I originally grew up in Birmingham, England, uh-huh. and I did my undergraduate in nutrition from the University of London, from King's nice. College, and I did my PhD at the University of Leeds. Oh, very good, very good. So with Food Industry Employment Program, what are you focusing on? So I'm focusing on food safety, and I have three pillars. The first one of those is to work with small, preferably minority um, own businesses to help them put food safety plans together so that they can be compliant with the Food Safety Modernization Act. The second part of this is to work with people who are in the poorer neighborhoods that are using food pantries who are on SNAP to maybe either start their own business um, and give them training so that they could go and work for the food industry on the line so that they could get an employment in the industry. So basically like a boost um, for small businesses to get them up running and earning money yes right what is the biggest hurdle in that you've seen so far i think it's just knowledge i think a lot of these small companies just don't even realize that they're under fda (laughs) you're right i have seen those practices yeah and we have we have the issue in new jersey where i'm based that there's no you're not allowed to sell food that you've made in your own kitchen. So there's a big hurdle there to get started. I mean, you can make stuff and sort of people can donate money, but you can't sell it. So there's a big hurdle to get started that you need to find a commercial kitchen before you can even make a product to be able to sell at the local farmer's market or anything. Wow. So I, I'd be interested in the long term to get some funding together from local authorities and, and maybe businesses to start a commercial kitchen where they could come, maybe rent a bit of space very cheaply, help them get the process together. And maybe there, because they're small companies, we just have to worry about local regulations. But I want them to be aware that if they grow anything, so yeah. it, what, it's 26000 dollars a year starting in September wow. you have to be able you have to be compliant with FDA regulations on safety wow and um, is there a common mistake that small business people make in terms of food safety I would say just not planning so um, you've got to plan very simple things like making sure you can wash things properly, including your, your, your staff hands and, and clothing and stuff like that. And um, a lot of people think it's just like being in their own kitchen. I've had a lot of people sort of contact me going, I'm doing it in my own kitchen, which in other states you can. Oh, no. And then they'll say, but my dog comes in the kitchen. Oh, and I'm no. like, no, no, no pets when you're producing food to sell to other people. Maybe if you're producing food for your family and your friends, that's okay. But <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's, the, it's getting past the mentality of I'm producing this for my home to I'm producing this for, for 
for the community and recognizing that comes with added responsibility. Do you actually sit down with them and, and um, inform them of what happens if food safety practices aren't followed? Yeah, I, I sit down with them. Um, I also, I let them talk to me about right. what they want to do. Yeah, and you then, have to listen first, yeah. Actually. Yeah, I think you have to listen first, because if you go down and say this, 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 yes. this, they're going to they, go, whoa, yeah, wait I'm a minute, <laughs> I'm not interested. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think, I think this sit down, see where they're at, and then pitch it to where they're at. Because some people have food service experience, so they know about ServeSafe. So if you start mm -hmm. from talking about ServeSafe, because essentially um, ServeSafe is your, your um, prerequisite programs. Mm -hmm. So if you've got ServeSafe training, you've, you've got an idea of what you need for good manufacturing practices. You've got an idea what you need for sanitation. So you've got a very good grounding that, you can then, that I can then build on and show them that they need to think about. So, um, so that that's that's good. But then, if you get people come in who've never had any experience in food at all, you have to persuade. You have to find a way, very gentle way of explaining to them, and it's not like any other business in the world, that food is uniquely itself. Yeah, that's true. So, say if I am a uh, growing bakery that mm -hmm. I work out at a kitchen, mm -hmm. and I want to start my new uh, bakery facility. Mm -hmm how would you offer your services? I would, I would um, ask you what product you were look interested in, what information you had about the product, what shelf life you had, how you knew what the shelf life was, what you were, what you were measuring. So, I mean, were you measuring, do you know what water activity is? Were you measuring no, water activity? No, bakers yeah. are not. <laughs> We bakers are not that sophisticated when we first start out. Yeah, you so know, it's all about, okay, does it mull on a second day or a third day? Yeah. <laughs> so I would be like, do you have a shelf? What's your shelf life? Right. Um, what do you want it to be? What do you want it to be? Yeah. Is it frozen distribution? How are you or, packaging right. it? What Correct. packaging material? Who else are you talking to? Because I can help you with certain things, and I have a little bit of expertise in my um, science background with baking, so I can help you a little bit with that. But what I don't have expertise is on packaging, and packaging is amazing what it can do to shelf life because yes. it can control the right. oxygen in and that water in and things like that right so right. that's something to so think you would of. actually go into the business and you would talk to the owner of the business mm -hmm. and create some kind of uh, manual yeah I mean eventually if they agreed that they wanted to build a food safety plan I'd see what they had already I mean if, I mean recipes are a good place to start because you can write SOPs right. and SSOPs from I mean sorry standard operating procedures and yes. sanitation standard operating procedures from recipes and the other thing to do quite often is sit down and talk to people I try not to go in the plant which sounds a bit odd but I try and get people to t talk me through the plant as if they were walking through the plant but not in the plant yeah, because, because I think when you, once you step inside you're sidetracked by a lot of other things so I find that when people are in the plant themselves they know the process it's familiar ground and they do things without thinking mm -hmm. and I want them to be thinking about the process so I want them to think what do they do when they first get into the building how do they do it where things are um, Little things like where they wash their hands, where they put their gloves on, why are the gloves there and not there. Right. Um, 
Uh, is there a foot mat for washing your feet? Um, a lot of food bakeries in particular haven't worried about food safety, but with the recent um, issue with salmonella and flour, they've had to start upping their game. And they don't yes. have to worry because they cook their product. That's so, true. The thermal process really is a, is a kill yeah, step for a lot yeah. of pathogens. If they, told, if they told me they were doing um, cookie dough, though, I might change That's my true. mind. <laughs> That's true, because you don't kill the sal salmonella. Then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question about small bakery owners mm -hmm. and why they are not taking FSMA seriously. Um, what is your uh, suggestion and advice for them? So I think they don't take it seriously because they see themselves as a local company. And so they've only had to deal with the Board of Health of wherever they're based. Right. But I, I would say take it seriously, because I mean, where I am in New Jersey, the chances of being able to sell over in Pennsylvania and the chances of being able to sell in Delaware are pretty high. So you want to make sure that you have, you want to be part of um, the FDA. You're going to end up being part of the FDA because you're, you're doing interstate trade. And a lot of the bakers, even though they're selling stuff, I mean, I lived up in Doylestown in Pennsylvania, which is on the Delaware River, and a lot of the bakers there were selling stuff over in Lambertsville, which is New Jersey, mm -hmm. which was sort of turned a blind eye to, but there's no reason why someone fussy FDA inspector could come in and go, where was this made? You're under my guidance. Right, And then true. once you start, even if you're a local firm who's only selling within a, within a small part of a state, once you start selling a certain amount, you're a business, you're a food business company, and you have to register as a food business company with the FDA, and you start That's getting true. inspected by them as well as by the local board of health. Right. And if you don't do any meat products, that's that's a good start. And you may be also inspected by the state, um, the state, whether it's the Board of Health or the Department of Agriculture, depending which state you're in. That's correct. So when you go into a small business like that, what's the first step you do for them? Well, usually when I go into a small business like that, I go and look at what their retail space is like. Because oh, that gives okay. you a really good impression of what the back of the house might be like. Right. So if there's problems with their retail space, um, like that's untidy, unclean, broken yeah. equipment, it yeah. tells you that it might be a bigger problem. Right. So you actually go in and write a manual for them? Yeah, eventually I would, I would well, actually help them write the manual. Oh, okay. I wouldn't okay. actually do it myself. Um, right. I mean, if necessary, I would, but that would probably cost them more. But okay. I th find it better if they do it themselves because they have ownership. Okay. And I feel that, I mean, as mentioned at IFT at one of the sessions, that the idea is food safety culture. You want that company to start thinking as food safety is like their number one priority. That before they do anything, food safety comes first. So That's it's, true. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think of the consumer, especially from baked products, the consumers are going to be the little everyone. Yeah. But little kids love yeah, baked products, and exactly. older people love baked products, yeah. and they're they're the people who are most compromised by getting a foodborne illness. That's so true. So you want them to be aware of that and take yeah. that responsibility. Those are great ideas. And um, say if a baker needs to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Email's probably best at the moment. Um, do you want me to give you my email? Yes. Okay, so it's C-G-A-D-A-V-I-E-S at gmail.com. Okay, thank you, Kathy. Thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Here's the last word from one of our sponsors, Parados. Are you tired of sanitizing your line to make it allergen-free due to an egg wash? Well, Parados has a solution for that. 88% of their consumers prefer items made with sunset glaze, a Parados egg wash alternative. They perceive these goods as fresher and more indulgent. 
It's shiny and best of all, it's allergen free. For more information, call them at 856 428 4300 or check out their website at puratos.us backslash sunset glaze. One more thing before we end please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked in Science. Till the next episode, bakers, sanitize and bake it clean. Mm-hmm.